Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today is the first day in a special week of podcast episodes. We will be releasing one hour of teaching every single day of this week as we approach the special Thanksgiving time. We start today with Skip Sunberg as he teaches on examining the self, repentance, worship, and the sacraments. Skip is a Lutheran teacher talking to several Lutherans in the audience. Whether you're Lutheran or not, we know that this teaching can inspire you in your daily walk with Christ. Enjoy. Residing at the weekly communion service in the Luther Seminary Chapel held on Wednesdays, I opened with the customary confession of sins. When it came time to pronounce the absolution, I said the following. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, hath had mercy upon us, and for the sake of the sufferings, death, and resurrection of his dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, forgiveth us all our sins. As a minister of the Church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare unto you who do truly repent and believe in him the entire forgiveness of all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. On the other hand, by the same authority, I declare unto the impenitent and unbelieving that so long as they continue in their impenitence, God hath not forgiven their sins and will assuredly visit their iniquities upon them if they turn not from their evil ways and come to true repentance and faith in Christ ere the day of grace be ended. Now, the stately, old-fashioned prose of this absolution got the attention of the assembled immediately. (laughs) People were not used to uh, the archaic language. When I came to the second paragraph that you see in front of you, with its warning of judgment, the sanctuary became completely still. People appeared somewhat in shock. The faculty and students, trained as they were in matters liturgical, knew that I was carrying out what is called in the tradition the office of the keys, the binding and loosing of sins. But to hear the binding key pronounced so explicitly was something most of them had never experienced in an actual worship setting. Uh, Malcolm Muggridge, the English journalist and satirist, and adult Christian convert, by the way, once said that the purpose of his life was to find the perfect dead cat to heave into the lap of the complacent. (laughs) It appeared that morning in chapel that I had found just such a cat. Some thought I was performing a stunt. Others that I was being unLutheran. After the service, I had a steady stream of emails and visitors to my office. No one mentioned the sermon I had preached, and I don't remember it, by the way. (laughs) Everyone wanted to talk to me about the absolution, and it went on for a couple of months. For the record, I was interested in that service neither to perform a stunt nor to do something foreign to the Lutheran liturgical tradition. The conditional absolution I employed has deep roots in Lutheran practice. 
I found it in the old service book and hymnal, the Red Book, which had been in use from 1958 to 1978 in the Lutheran Church in America, the LCA, and the American Lutheran Church, the ALC, and their predecessor bodies, okay? And a copy of that service, uh, Sonia handed out to most of you, so you can see it. Um, This absolution was attached to a brief order for public confession. It's page 252 if you're looking for the absolution itself. A brief order for public confession meant for what was called in the worship book a specially appointed preparatory service, which, by the way, is a long-standing common Lutheran practice, such as might be scheduled during Holy Week, or when confession precedes the administration of the sacrament by a day. This absolution, word for word, can be found in the orders for public confession in both the Common Service Book of the Lutheran Church from 1917, uh, authorized by the General Synod, the General Council, the United Synod South, all of which... Uh, joined in 1918 to form the ULCA, um, the United Lutheran Church in America, the Cadillac of American Lutheran denominations. And that old common service book goes back to the common service for American Lutherans. Are you still with me? From 1888. Um, The common service is the historic anchor for Lutheran liturgical practice among American Lutherans in the 20th century. It also may be found, again, word for word, in the hymnal and order of service from 1925 of the Augustana Synod. In both these older worship books, the suggestion is made that the order for public confession may be used on Sunday morning as a preface to the communion service. And uh, how it might work is something like this. Um, uh, you have a regular service with the sermon ends with the prayer. Uh, now you give a few minutes for people to uh, take off if they want to. Okay? Those who stay go to this public order for confession and absolution, and then they receive communion. And we're talking about something that would happen infrequently. Um, It could be twice a year, both times during Lent, Ash Wednesday and Maundy Thursday. Or it could be four times a year with the change of seasons. But you didn't do it all the time. Now, as a church historian and seminary teacher, I have always understood the daily chapel service at Luther Seminary not only as a time to worship, but also as an occasion to learn about the church and its historic practices. If there is any corporate act of the church in which memory and tradition are to be self-consciously preserved and passed on, it is the formal liturgy. In this case, however, something which was once part of that liturgy had been cut off and cast aside. Why should this be? 
Why should something that was once carefully preserved because it was considered by the church in its communal wisdom to be essential to the discipline of the church's practice of Holy Communion be allowed to disappear. The fact is that what I resurrected that Wednesday morning carried the shock of something new, strange, and uh, as judged by the easy canons of contemporary theology, suspicious. The conditional absolution of the order for public confession no matter that it was part of the Lutheran liturgical tradition, engendered a harsh reaction because it did not affirm the essential characteristics, indeed articles of faith, that are the hallmarks of mainline Protestantism in America today, non-judgmental tolerance and accommodation. Now, <clears throat> in a book entitled All is Forgiven, the Secular Message in American Protestantism, which I was reading at about the same time as my experience in chapel. Um, the sociologist Marsha G. Witten argues that in contemporary American society, with its strong secular profile, there is but a small social space left for sacred things. The temptation for the preacher is to modify and accommodate Christian faith to the dominant values of the culture in order to make religious practice more marketable. Such things as the quest for individual fulfillment, the therapeutic mindset, moral relativism, tolerance, all of which have a profound influence on our lives, and all of which we embrace, and embrace for good reasons. work their way into the preaching and teaching of the church. The tradition, then, is subject to re-evaluation. The transcendent, majestic, awesome God of Luther and Calvin, whose image informed early Protestant visions of the relationship between human beings and the divine, undergoes a softening of demeanor. Now, Witten illustrates this with the personal example of listening to Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, broadcast on the radio on a Good Friday afternoon. This profound work of Western culture portrays the pathos of events of the Passion of Christ and calls the believer to identify with the sufferings of Jesus. That same afternoon, when she's listening to Bach on the radio, the male brought a flyer from a local church advertising the benefits of the congregation in these upbeat terms. Enjoy exciting music with a contemporary flavor. Hear positive, practical messages which uplift you each week. How to feel good about yourself. How to overcome depression. How to have a full and successful life. Learning to handle your money without it handling you. I'm going to go for that one. The secrets of successful family living. How to overcome stress. Trust your children to the care of dedicated nursery workers. Why not get a lift instead of a letdown this Sunday? Witten reports that she was immediately struck by the contrast um, with the music of Johann Sebastian Bach and the contrast between that and the come-ons of a local American parish seeking to be hip 
What, after all, do the blandishments of this advertising flyer have to do with the plaintive first area for alto in the St. Matthew Passion? Grief and remorse rend the sinful heart in two, that the tears of my eyes be an acceptable gift to thee, faithful Jesus. Now, although not a Christian herself, and her study is all the more valuable for being the observations of an outsider. If I remember correctly, Marsha Witten is a secular Jew. Witten knew that these two experiences of church had nothing in common. Now, perhaps her comparison is not exactly fair. We certainly accept Bach's music as great art. We all do. His music transcends time. But can we accept the austere worship tradition which he assumed and out of which he worked? Is it not this austere tradition that is in question and is often used as a foil for the contemporary church seeking to be relevant? The fact is that when a liturgical practice of the past confronts the mainline church with the stark literalness and severity of the original faith, it is often deemed too uncomfortable to accept, and therefore it is removed. Now, I pondered these questions at the time. I did not pursue them. I might have left the entire episode in the past, if it wasn't for a much more recent experience. I happen to serve on the board of the Reclaim Hymnal Project. Um, this is a group of Lutheran pastors and uh, teachers and leaders who, several years ago, uh, decided to put together a hymnal that would embody a traditional Lutheran practice and also provide a fine selection of hymns. And by the way, the hymns in the Reclaim hymnal are not fuddy-duddy, okay? Uh, Gracia Grindall at the seminary is in charge, and uh, she knows how to pick up out the best. And this was an introductory uh, tradition, uh, edition rather, that was put out a few years ago with 50 hymns, by the way. 50 hymns that everybody should know. Right? Write down, 50 hymns you have to teach the kids, besides Christmas carols, which do get passed on. No problem there. But other hymns, Beautiful Savior, and then the one that should begin every Lutheran service, no matter what, Holy, 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 you know. In any event, in uh, that uh, uh, introductory edition, there was a... Um, uh, confession and absolution. There it is up on the board. And the wording is slightly different, <laughs> but it's the same thing as the old public order for confession. Okay? Well, when it came out and people got a hold of it, now this is 15 years later, but broader in the church, um, not to put too fine a point on it, all heck broke loose. And uh, the uh, reclaim uh, board heard from uh, pastors and people all over the place um, saying that um, uh, this was absolutely wrong. 
that you cannot have a conditional absolution, that it wasn't Lutheran, that it represents a confusion of law and gospel, that it displays the wrong ordering of law and gospel, since law follows gospel, and so on uh, and so forth. Um, they asked me if I would try to um, answer these critics. And uh, so I did uh, a couple of years ago uh, by giving a public lecture on this matter at a reclaimed conference. And that became the basis of the study that I engaged in. Didn't do any good, by the way. <laughs> uh, we're very fond of cherry-picking history. We take from it what we want and leave what we don't like. Uh, well, that experience just got me mad. <laughs> so I decided to, uh, to uh, follow this out. Now, I'm an historian, okay? And for all of you, history was your favorite subject growing up, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an historian. And, uh, but I am fairly, uh, how to describe it, low church. I haven't been big uh, on formal liturgy. And uh, um, I, I'm not uh, too much of a chancel prancer. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Um, but by golly, what I found is that when you look at the worship practices of the church, you're not simply getting the ideas of uh, some hotshot theologian, even if it's Martin Luther, or uh, sort of the, the literate uh, professional class in the church. You're getting an idea of how the church as a whole thinks the bureaucrats who write the rules and regulations, the people in the pew who adapt practices and do them. And uh, so all things, all sorts of things opened up. Um, for example, there is at the seminary 25 huge folio volumes, uh, first put together by a German named Zeilinger in which all the bureaucratic rules and regulations and government regulations of church orders are written out. And he put them all together and published them. And one of the reasons I'm so pale is because I spent an entire year reading through this stuff. What did people actually do? Well, when you do something like that, you learn about the morphology of an institution, a church, a tradition. Uh, that's a fancy word used by the theologian Werner Ehlert uh, in a two-volume book he wrote in the 30s called The Morphology of Lutheranism. It's an amazing work in which he, he studies not simply what Luther had to say or that first generation, but goes through Lutherans and their ideas in the territories in Germany, and how it spread to other places, and what people actually did. And so when you look at this material, um, you get an idea of the morphology of the church, of the way it is structured. Now, um, that's what I'm interested in doing with you this week, 
and um, in doing this to uh, make claims about Lutheran identity. Uh, not simply the identity of Martin Luther's theology, but a broad understanding of what Lutherans have done across the years. How many here are of German or Scandinavian extraction? Would you please raise your hand? Put it down. <laughs> Why do I ask? These are your relatives. Many of you, these are your relatives. <laughs> um, what they did in uh, generations past. Okay. <clears throat> now, what the Lutheran tradition has to say about confession and absolution must be understood in the larger context of Christian worship in the West. And so that's what I propose to do uh, um, uh, first, is to look at worship practices in the church from early on and follow them along. So, uh, looking at the development of uh, worship practices in the West concerning this matter of uh, coming before the Lord's table in Holy Communion, under Paul's injunction, his imperative, you must examine the self. Uh, what have Christians done about this across the centuries? Um, uh, Ernst Trelch, that's actually a photograph of Pancho Villa. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. That's Ernst Trelch. Just go, just go with it, okay? <laughs> uh, Ernst Trelch... Uh, very great German scholar from the last century, early in the last century, uh, wrote a book entitled The Social Teachings of the Christian Churches. Um, here's a church, it has a theology, it has a constituency, but whether it likes to or not, whether it intends to or not, it conveys a set of social teachings. It makes a witness in the world about what the nature of Christianity is and what its place is. And Trelch was one of those people who believed that there were two types of people in the world. Those who divide everything into two groups and those who don't. <laughs> and uh, he was one of those guys. And he said, across the centuries, you can find two types of churches develop, um, which especially becomes clear uh, the longer in history that we go. There is, on the one hand, the church type, and on the other hand, the sect type. The church type emphasizes the role of the Christian community as an established institution of society and culture that seeks to be all-inclusive in its proclamation of grace as the assurance of salvation. That's its fundamental message. The loosing of sins, not the binding of them, is the focus of worship. You're gathered here, and you are forgiven. And everyone is invited in. And we're going to cast the net as wide as we possibly can. The other is the sect type. This emphasizes that faith is a decision. 
asserting that the normal beginning of genuine Christian life is spiritual transformation through explicit commitment to Christ and taking responsibility for one's life in moral terms. The sect type does not shy away from the exercise of the binding key. <laughs> Discipline is the key to its success. Now, in the list of the church type, um, uh, let's put the Episcopalians <laughs> and um, most mainline Protestants, including Lutherans of the ELCA. And in the sect type, let's put, uh, well, what shall we put there? Assemblies of God, how's that? Southern Baptists, all right? Uh, in the church type, let's put Central Lutheran in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, for the sect type, how about Mount Carmel? Huh? Um, that is to say there is an Orthodox Lutheran tradition, so to speak, and there is a Pietist Lutheran tradition. Um, I remember uh, uh, Gracia Grindall once showed me a photograph of a gathering of um, ELC youth from the 1920s. This was a Luther League gathering at the Minneapolis Convention Center. And the, the convention gathered under the theme, you need Christ. And the purpose of the convention was to close the deal with the young people. <laughs> um, that is sect type of experience, even among the Lutherans. You got the distinction? Now, they're not necessarily good guys and bad guys here. These are two ways in which the church has tried to convey the message of the gospel. And if the sect type pushes too far, it becomes puritanical and intolerant. And if the church type pushes too far, it becomes loosey-goosey and uh, a doormat. Um, but we both know, we all know, these two experiences of the church, uh, in the church, do we not? Okay. So, um, this is what uh, uh, Trelch talks about, and um, uh, this is a distinction that I'm going to be using again and again. Are you still with me? We rowing in the boat together? Okay. <laughs> Let me begin with some basics now. Now that you have the introduction and how I got into this thing, we're going to look at liturgical worship in the church throughout its history, but spending a lot of time on the Lutherans in the 16th century. But to begin with, um, what is the purpose of uh, liturgy, liturgical worship, the stuff in the book? What's it about? Uh, where am I now? <laughs> I have a story. The instructor placed a magic marker on the seat for each student in the class. She taught ESL, English as a Second Language. Uh, she was working this day with church volunteers who had signed up to help Hmong immigrants, pilgrims to a new land in Central Valley, California. With the magic marker, the teacher said, 
write the number 44 on the palm of your left hand and the number 66 on the palm of your right. She explained, to learn a language so that a person can navigate his way through the world, each word must be repeated a minimum of between 44 and 66 times before it is implanted in the brain. To teach people even the rudiments of a new tongue is laborious. Dear volunteers, you must have patience. Now, a former student who's a pastor in Central Valley told me this story because she, along with members of her congregation, decided to volunteer for this group. Think of it. To repeat between 44 and 66 times each word with which to build a sentence, to make an observation, to ask directions, so much effort to find our way in the world among earthly things, to live in this mortal realm. What is the number of repetitions needed to learn things divine? To find our way in the spiritual realm. Seventy times seven? Forty years wandering in the wilderness? Or shall we just say with the psalmist, the days of our lives are seventy years or perhaps eighty? if we are strong. Even then, their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. It takes enormous effort just to stumble and mumble in halting speech on the path that leads through this veil of tears to God. This effort we must make we are called as Christians to witness to Christ, and we cannot witness if we are inarticulate, unable to traffic in the visible and invisible and make connections between them. Scripture admonishes, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. And do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by Him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. To witness to our hope in Christ, to explain forthrightly what we believe to be true and not to be ashamed in doing it is a mandate for each Christian. Now, to fulfill this mandate, we must prepared, be prepared and nourished in worship. For preparation, St. Paul commands us to examine ourselves and to do so repeatedly in the presence of holy things, bread and wine, that are body and blood of the Lord, to take stock of ourselves and what we do. For nourishment, we receive the Lord's Supper. It feeds us and strengthens us, strengthens us. but this is not merely for our own benefit. Receiving the Supper leads to witness. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. St. Paul makes clear that preparation means everything. Self-examination is the hinge to the entire process. Now here's what he says. 
Who therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What's that all about? But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. To travel the path to God through worship, to learn the language of the spiritual realm, means peeling away layers of illusion and pretension and bringing to light what we want to keep in the dark. We resist doing this. Even if our personal sins do not particularly bother us, we do not wish to dwell on them. We certainly do not want to disclose them for fear of being caught and thus embarrassed and made ashamed. To search the self takes great courage, which is a rare thing. I do not know the man so bold writes the great American poet Emily Dickinson. He dare in lonely place that awful stranger consciousness deliberately face. How many times do you and I want to look in the mirror and say, this is me? It is indeed an awful stranger. Um, God calls us to face the self and will not abide any excuse to avoid examination. We are warned repeatedly by the offices of the church, especially the keys, not to shirk our duty, but instead truly to repent ere the day of grace be ended. Whatever its faults and misuses over the centuries, and they have been legion, liturgical worship at its best has this purpose to call Christians to repentance, to warn them to be under no illusion as to what they are and how far they fall short when they stand before God and holy things, to teach them to worship God in humility, to feed them the bread of life, to make them ready to give testimony to Christ in word and deed. To do these things in worship is to learn the language of the divine realm. Now, where's the grace of God in this austere conception? I submit that grace resides in the repetition. Liturgical worship assumes the weakness and frailty of Christian believers. It takes for granted that the Christian will ever mumble and stumble on the path to God that she will never be instantly and permanently converted, that he will fall away. Christians must ask for forgiveness again and again. Repetition there must be. Um, this repetition is blessed by God. It is grounded in the promise that Christ will not give up on us, but that we can keep coming back. So imagine, if you will, that on the palms of the hands of our Lord 
are not only the bloody wounds made by ancient spikes, but a fabulous pair of numbers, known only to him. Numbers far in excess of 44 and 66. The repetitions it takes to learn a new word in the mundane world. Now, whatever that, those numbers are, um, they are the loving repetitions of God. He invites us back again and again and again. Uh, we who are faltering immigrants in the spiritual realm. Um, this is the nature of the divine presence. He makes demands on us, but he calls us back again and again. Now, um, this ability to come again and again and again also fulfills a deep-seated desire of human religiousness. Jewish theologian Martin Buber wrote this, Man desires to have God. He desires to have God continually in space and time. He is loath to be satisfied with the inexpressible confirmation of the meaning. He wants to see it spread out as something that once can be taken out and handled again and again. A continuum, unbroken in space and time, that ensures life for him at every point and moment. There must be a place where you can find God. And God knows this about us. And so uh, think of the Old Testament. And think of the people wandering in the wilderness, carrying the Ark of the Covenant for 40 years, trying to reach what? The promised land, but not getting there. Uh, but God tells Moses, and then he tells Aaron, um, that there is a place where I will be. It is this mercy seat that sits atop the ark. You come here and make your sacrifice of atonement. Lord, I have sinned. And I promise that I will be there to receive it. There's a place that you can come to where I am. Now, who is the ultimate sacrifice of atonement, the ultimate giving of blood for us? Christ. Uh, Paul call, calls him in Romans 3, the mercy seat. Um, he fulfills the sacrifice, but he's also there. And uh, he invites us to come to his table on the night in which he was what? Betrayed by whom? Who hasn't betrayed him? Raise your hands. <laughs> All of us. He sets the table. This is the place where we can come again and again. Now, um, uh, that, that seems to me to be uh, among the most uh, um, visceral attractions of uh, Christian worship and the spaces in which Christian worship takes place. Uh, such as this beautiful chapel, or the uh, old chapel that preceded it, that went back uh, how far, Johann? 1938. And uh, how many of you have come back to uh, Mount Carmel again and again through the years, uh, and brought your children here, or maybe came here as children, right? 
planting seeds, uh, finding in this space um, the type of experience that nurtures faith, um, uh, faith that can be revived again and again. That uh, is what I call blessed repetition. And um, uh, that is the, the fundamental nature of uh, Christian worship. Um, I'm going to take a break here. What I want to do now is to go through um, uh, the worship practices of the early church, uh, moving up to the Reformation, once again, to see what Christians uh, actually did. Um, uh, and uh, how they experienced the faith. And um, one of the first sources that we have outside of uh, uh, the Bible itself is a letter written by Pliny the Younger, who was governor um, in uh, Bithynia. And you see Bithynia on that map? It's the northern part of what is present-day Turkey. And um, he writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan. It's about 112 AD, in which he is seeking to cover his rear end. He's got a problem. Um, the place is loaded with enough Christians that they're causing all sorts of problems. Um, disrupting uh, forms of worship that uh, uh, other people have that are not Christian, and complaints are being made, and he's trying to find out who these Christians are. And uh, he's also suspicious because he knows that uh, when people are denounced as Christians, um, uh, they are often punished, and so people in the area in which he's governing are calling all sorts of people Christians to get rid of them, right? Mr. Speaker, in my hand I have the names of 123 communists, okay? In my hands I have the names of 123 Christians. Get them on the list, uh, get rid of them. And uh, he's concerned with due process, so he's trying to find out who's a Christian and who isn't and uh, what to do with them. Um, now, um, to find out who they are, he takes two uh, what the Christians call uh, deaconesses, um, female Christian deaconesses, servants, and he tortures them. The Romans never fooled around. He tortures them to find out what they did. And here is... Um, uh, uh, the earliest description we have from a non-Christian source of how Christians worshipped in the beginning. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. Uh, oh, wait a second, this is... Uh, <clears throat> right. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel uh, no doubt that uh, contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserve chastisement, right? And punish them anyway. Um, so then he says, uh, um, when I worked with these deaconesses, I found out the following. Uh, 
The whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. What is this list of things? Ten Commandments. After which it was their custom to separate, then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. What kind of food? What are you guessing? Bread and wine. Okay? So they would gather before dawn in a place. And the Romans were always suspicious of... Uh, of uh, assembly, groups that would, would assemble. They were afraid that they would uh, commit sedition of some sort. So they, 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 they uh, meet before dawn. They sing a hymn to Christ as God. Jesus is Lord, right? Kurios, Lord. And then the, their worship consists of pledging to each other um, these bonds of trust that in relationship to each other, they commit themselves to the Ten Commandments. Uh, not to adultery, not to bear false witness, not to steal. This I promise to you, you promise to me. And then off they go. Um, what do you see in this worship? <laughs> huh? Repetition, but also examination, right? Examination of each other. Um, can I trust you? Can you trust me? And why did they need to trust each other? Because society hated them. And if they got out of line, they could be arrested, and then they would be executed. So um, they had to hang on closely to each other. And um, uh, this was the nature of their worship. Uh, well, uh, it would appear... Uh, that they would go to a secret place, a cave, or uh, someplace out in the woods for this worship, gathering together, and then uh, separate and gather at somebody's house, I guess, to eat food. That's what it appears to be. And um, uh, e sharing food together was a separate act for them. It's a good question, <laughs> but this is what they did. And the food was ordinary food. Ordinary food. So Right, and, and if anyone claimed that what they were doing was engaging in the black arts and, uh, you know, cutting up babies and drinking their blood or something, no, it's ordinary food. This is what they did. Well, if, if this separation, when did it, if it weren't now, when did it become the case that that, that first portion was more, was more like our equivalency of the liturgy of the word, was open to all, you know, the catechumens, the mass or the liturgy of the catechumens, and then at, at the end of that, was only those who were you know, baptized that would be part of, you know, would even be there for the mysteries. Fairly quickly. A uh, lot depends on what sources we have. With history, you're always dealing with stuff that falls off the wagon, right? So what we know of the past is what we have. And there is another document. I'm flying by the seat of my pants now. See if I have it here. Uh, yeah, called the DDK or teaching which dates to about 120 A.D. Pliny's letter is 112. 
And uh, 120 AD, although some think that portions of the Didache go all the way back to uh, 80 AD, really far back. And um, uh, it begins by saying there are two ways. This is another one who divides everything into two. There's a way of death and there is a way of life. And the way of life consists of the following, and this is how we must live. The second commandment of the teaching, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not corrupt boys, do not fornicate, do not steal, do not go in for sorcery, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. These things you cannot do. Okay? And this, this is who we are. Now, in uh, Roman society, you should know, people didn't have a right to existence simply by being born. They had to be taken to the head of the clan, the so-called pater, pater familius, the father of the family. And uh, he would check the, the uh, child out. Ten fingers, ten toes, inside plumbing, outside plumbing, and so on. And then decide if they had enough room in the clan for another baby. If they didn't, the baby was gotten rid of. Uh, by abandonment in the, in the uh, wilderness, or very often by a ritual drowning. Right? Just get rid of the baby. Well, these Christians gather together and say what? This we do not do. In fact, when we get dunked in the water, what happens? You get life. And how do we speak it? Uh, how do we speak about it? We are adopted. Are we not? We, we undergo an adoption. Um, we're born in this world, in a sense, abandoned, but in baptism we are adopted. We are taken in. I mean, the resonances here for all sorts of things, uh, it goes very deep indeed, as we shall see when we start looking at baptismal liturgies, just how rich they are with associations that have to do with this type of understanding. Okay? Um, but uh, uh, this, this is what they, uh, they uh, uh, say about themselves. And then they go on to say uh, this. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm over time anyway. I've got to gather my stuff together and, um, uh, and uh, come back at this tomorrow, right? Is that right? Okay. Um, what you have with, with this understanding, these, these pledges that they make to each other, the next thing is um, they have instructions about how they practice baptism, and once you are baptized, you can go to the Lord's table, and then they have rules for that. So you see them, they, you see worship developing in, in specific relation to the sacraments and what the rules are. And uh, this is how worship builds along. Okay, well, thank you for your patience, and we'll uh, try again later. Thanks for joining us today on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Join us again tomorrow for the next session with Skip Sunberg.